and welcome to A Friend in Me, the podcast all about friendship, culture, and the kingdom of God through the lens of Pixar. I'm here today with my friend, Alecta, who you may remember from the Brave episode. How are you doing, Alecta? So well, Porter. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you. We have a bunch of great questions sent in by listeners and friends of the show. But before that, I just want to say Merry Christmas, Alecta. How are you feeling this Christmas season? You feeling jolly? You know, I am excited for a very happy Christmas, but in Colorado, it is not cold out. And so my Christmas spirit is is just not very present because it doesn't feel very seasonal yet. So I'm kind of struggling, but I have worn my um, Christmas denim shirt quite a few times. And I'm proud of myself because normally I forget I own it until the 25th. So um, at least I'm remembering that this year. There you go. Yeah, the seasonal garb is is good. I have worn my elf costume a lot. Um, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, you're looking forward to the Christmas season? How How's your Advent been? You know, I don't feel like I have reflected as much as I could or should. Um, I feel like because it's a busy time of the semester, I've kind of yeah, similar you to you and your denim, you forgetting it till the 25th. I feel like I have kind of forgotten Advent until the last couple of days. I mean, like, oh, shoot, I haven't. Um, I mean, obviously enjoying time at my church, enjoying the Christmas choir um, at North Shore. But but yeah, anyway. Excited to just slow down and be with family and enjoy celebrating Jesus. How, how about you for Advent? You know, I have been very blessed with the LaVita Advent calendar. Shout out LaVita. Um, and it has been really good to sit and read and reflect on um, my hope for the next coming of, of Christ and what that looks like and, and um, keeping, keeping uh, awake for that in a sense. Or as the children say these days, woke for that. Just kidding. That's not what I'm saying. So you're saying you're making Advent woke, Electa. That's what I'm hearing. No, I, no, that's good. Yeah, be alert. The Lord is coming. You know, I did not know until this year that the song Joy to the World is not about Christmas. It's about his second coming. Did you know that? You just taught me that. So that's yeah. fascinating. Our, at my church, our pastor is doing a sermon series on what child is this? And it, I am learning so much about the hymn and that it was traditionally a poem. Um, and it's it's very powerful. Um, it's Yeah, it's very, very good to reflect on. Wow, that sounds great. Well, let's talk about some of these great questions. So I submit, I put out a call on the Toy Story 4 episode. People send in questions uh, to the show that I can answer. And people delivered. We got some great questions from, from great friends of the show. So excited mm -hmm. to explore some of these with you today so let's start off with a question sent in by nate ryan he so oh just to, to frame this for everyone we're i asked for questions about pixar theology or both so there's a range of things uh that people have sent in questions about but i know having listened to a lot of episodes people might have some questions about uh, my approach to the podcast or about Pixar in general or specific movies or some, a variety of different things that they might be curious about. So the 
first couple questions are kind of more broad, and then we have some more specific questions. So first up, Electa, we have from Nate Ryan. He asks, why should Christians engage with secular films? And what value, if any, does comparing and contrasting the worldview a film is presenting versus the biblical versus the biblical worldview? Basically, what is the value of engaging with a secular film as a Christian? And then how could we use uh, comparative strategies to examine worldviews in movies? I can start with that. Here's the thing, Electa. I think yeah. stories are a a vibrant part of what makes a culture itself. And I think the stories that are being told by our society today show so much about what go, is going on in the hearts and the desires of, of people. Um, and oftentimes, filmmakers, authors, poets, playwrights, can almost be prophets of their time where they are speaking either challenges that they believe the culture needs to hear, or they are just kind of voice pieces of their time that are demonstrating what is going on in the milieu. So if we want to be good missionaries, good people on mission to our culture and mission to our society, just as you would say to any foreign missionary that they should learn a lot about the language and the culture uh, before presenting the gospel, uh, because you don't want to present it in a way that's actually foolish or insensitive to the people listening to it. I think it's similarly important that we understand, okay, what narratives are our culture exploring? What things do people desire? And then how can we help them uh, see that Christ is a fulfillment of these things that they might be looking for in other venues? So, that is just one reason why I think it's valuable for a Christian to engage with secular films. There are plenty of others, but yeah. What do you think about that, Alexa? Piggybacking thought. I also have my own thought to share, but piggybacking on that, um, I'm in a Bible study right now. We're going through the book of Acts. And that just really reminds me of um, when Paul um, is going through the city and seeing all the different idols. And he says, sees the idol that says an idol to an unknown God. Um, and it's just very much like Paul is like living in and amongst the people. He's going to the synagogue every week um, when he's on his missionary journeys. You know, he's spending months at a time with with the people and in these cities. And in this instance, he's seeing this and he's learning this about their culture. And he's saying, you are worshiping what you don't know. Let me illuminate that for you. Um, and I think that that is really powerful when we look and see the longings and the hopes and the fears that are presented by our culture in the narratives that we tell. Um, and we can say, hey, I see where you are longing for Christ in that. So just kind of piggybacking off of um, what you said yeah. about that, relating that to that story of Paul in the book of Acts. Um, and then my own answer to the question, I just think um, I, I've recently decided about myself that if I hadn't studied biblical studies and Christian issues in college, I would have been a philosophy major um, because I've been really just like digging deep into what it means to be human and just philosophy in general. And I think that the core tasks of, of being human are answering the questions, um, what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. And those are like the three veins of philosophy in and of themselves. And um, we see like in every story that we tell ourselves, that our culture tells us in every book, there's something that's answering that question um, about being human. And as Christians, 
we have our narratives answering those questions um, and we understand the source of goodness, the source of truth and the source of beauty to be from the Lord. And I think that when we only look for those things in Christian made media, um, we are missing out on the answer that this, our secular community is telling us, but we're also missing out on goodness and truth and beauty coming from other places and seeing God at work um, in those places as well. And so I just think that um, in secular film and secular media and Pixar movies, um, we can witness what is we can witness what is good. We can witness what is true. But also, I think, especially in the realm of animation and art, um, we get to witness beauty in new ways and the the idea of creativity um, and what it means to create and tell a story. And I think that that's a deeply human part of us that um, was given to us by by the Lord. So. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's great. And I, I think of there's a specific couple movies that jumped to my mind in terms of you talked about the movies as a vehicle of beauty and and it doesn't have to be a christian film to carry beauty and truth that god can speak through like you said and i don't know have you heard of the movie past lives or have you seen it okay so it's a movie that came out earlier this year and it's about uh woman who has immigrated from Korea to the US and she had a childhood sweetheart that um she had multiple kind of moments in her life where she was in love with him or they had this special connection but then she moves away and she gets married to somebody that she met in the states and all of a sudden this kind of old fling or whatever is coming to visit her in the United States and it explores how um the commitment of marriage is something to stay within and stay pursuing um even when there's someone else who maybe who speaks your heart language and who like you seem to have so much in common with and so it basically demonstrates the like the pain but also beauty of staying and practicing commitment and staying with the one that you have made vows to and it was just really interesting to see a film that came out from, yeah, certainly not a Christian uh, director, I don't believe, but that is kind of highlighting the beauty of self-control and self-restraint. Because um, a lot of films that come out today don't demonstrate that and say, oh, follow your heart. And here's this movie where you can see the real heart, like des- longings and heart desires that she and this guy have for each other because of their history together and yet she makes the decision to to be committed to her husband and to have integrity and and uh anyway thought that was a cool image of a film communicating something beautiful and true in a way that like propositional saying oh it's more beautiful to stay married or commitment is important like just saying that as a proposition doesn't carry the same weight as seeing a film where someone has to make that hard choice to uh yeah be loyal Humans are storied people. We are built on narrative. The end. You know, like if, if you think about what's most important about about you, there's a story behind that. Um, and if you think about what's most important about God, there's a story behind that. Um, and we're a part of God's big story as well. Um, and so figuring out how stories fit into how we understand ourselves is so important. 
Amen to that. That actually feeds into our next question, which is how might you respond to someone who struggles to see art or film as a way of expressing theology? I would ask them if they've ever read the book, My Name is Asher Lev. Or hello, I have my not. name is Asher Lev. Oh, a porter, write it down. I wrote down the name of, of your of your movie. Okay, okay. I'll write it down. It's by Chaim Potok, um, who is a Jewish author. And it's it's a story of a boy who is navigating um his mother's struggle with mental health, and he's an artist, and he he cannot find an expression of the pain that he sees except through art of the crucifix. And it's, it's very controversial because he's Jewish and it's, it's a really powerful story. Mm. Um, but I think it also tells the story of an artist and why art is important. And like I said, that question, I think honestly, Christians are really good about talking about what is good and what's not good, right? We're good about talking about sin. <laughs> um, Christians are really good about talking about what is true and what is not true. Um, and like, what is reality and what does it mean to be a human being, you know, like those things, but we really have, I think in some senses missed the ballpark at acknowledging that last question of what is beautiful. Um, and I think that that's what really fits into, to that. And I think that through, there are different periods of history where Christians have been able to acknowledge that. I think about studying the architecture, um, of like different chapels and, um, those things and what does it mean to like thinking about Sistine Chapel, right? Like seeing, the beauty of scripture, um, like painted out on a ceiling, you know, in this place of worship and all those things, right? Um, that's really powerful. And that should cause us to worship and cause us to feel awe. But oftentimes, at least out here in Colorado, most churches um, these days are like very tan. Like they're just very beige. <laughs> and, and it's so lame. Beige, beige like, can't be beautiful. <laughs> I like that beige. No, that's fair. That's fair. Boring beige. But but it's 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 uninspiring, right? Like, and there's a part, there's a deep part of us as human beings that's struck by beauty because that's what calls our hearts to worship. Um, and so when we're thinking about art, when we're thinking about film, we're thinking about being storied people, acknowledging that we are humans and human beings are affected by beauty is really important. And it's more accessible and less politicized for people to have conversations with non-believers. If we're not fluent in beauty, if we're only fluent in truth and goodness, then any sort of conversation about Jesus might then end up being a debate type of like if you're if you're good at talking about truth, then you might end up in debate sort of formats with uh non-believers or if you're good at thinking about goodness and evil, then a non-believer you're talking to might felt might feel judged or feel like there's yeah like uh moral policing going on not saying that these areas aren't important for us to talk about but i think beauty is such an on-ramp to deep conversations that doesn't feel as threatening um because yeah it's like wow that was a really beautiful movie like wow that story really connected with me oh what part connected with you oh and then you get talking about like sacrifice or commitment or um life the affirming of the beauty of human life and the the strength of the human spirit oh okay there's a quick 
connection or there's there are pathways from those conversations to the gospel in a way that is so less like aggressive or, or scary than oh like let's talk about the the culture wars or let's talk about um this like christianese vision of like salvation it's like oh well what does that have to do with me so i i think just using films as launching pads to talk about like you were saying philosophy and the deeper questions in life uh i think can be a really fruitful tool to connect with uh, people who haven't yet seen jesus as beautiful mm-hmm. yeah and and i think that also in that realm um anyone who is creating um is utilizing a something that the creator has given them, right? Um, I was actually talking with, um, was I talking with someone? Was I listening to someone? Where did I hear this? Oh, I was at a piano concert <laughs> on nice. Sunday. It was a piano concert and this person was deeply, like just an incredible musician. Um, and he was talking about how he, as, as a composer and as someone who did arrangements of things, believes that... Um, Every song that has and every arrangement of notes, everything that has has already and will always be in existence as created by God. And the job of the creator is to find that um, and to and to sing that alongside um, the Lord and like creating song. And it just deeply I've been really reminded recently of um, the magician's nephew. If anyone has read that uh, book from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, and at the beginning, Aslan is singing into existence all creation and creation is singing back. And it's this hymn of creation that also creates um and to be to be created by god um he has also given us as human beings the ability to create um and so when we miss out on what is being created just generally by human beings but then also by christian storytellers by christian artists by non-christian storytellers non-christian artists we're missing out on what does it mean to to be in a creative capacity uh, like a human being um, that has been created by the creator. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, I totally get that there are some people who maybe they don't feel like that this is how God speaks to them. But I just want to encourage you, if you're, if this is hard for you to like, see how God could speak to you through this, that's okay. Uh, but I, there are a lot of us who really have encountered God through story and narrative. And if you keep listening and if you keep pursuing it, I am confident that there would be a story out there that would deeply resonate with your spirit and that God could encourage you through. So I do recognize like there are people who are going to gravitate more towards this, but I do think it's a valuable exercise. And and if you think about it, Jesus used stories to do a lot of his teaching. He used parables because propositional truth doesn't actually carry necessarily the same emotional and spiritual weight that a story can so anyway we love stories so our next question comes from ellen grosh may remember her from the monsters inc episode Mm -hmm. oh yeah ellen asks what is a non-pixar film that you've had theological conversations about what film, how do you see the gospel in it or not? Hmm. That's a great question. I think I probably have theological musings about just about every film that I watch. <laughs> yeah. And one have you I, seen Sharknado? Because that one. 
So many <laughs> theological. So much. So much rich theology. Um, yeah, it was packed, really. But yeah, what's one that, one or two that come to mind? So um, the first one that comes to mind is like one of my favorite films, um, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I'd say probably definitely in my top three. Um, and actually, I guided a trip um, with Jonathan. Shout out, Jonathan. I don't know if you listen to this, but if you do, hey, what up? Um, and our trip theme was the quote that guides the whole movie of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, that's the motto for the magazine, Life. Um, and I actually have it in front of me because someone gave it to me as a Christmas gift. It says, to see the world, things dangerous to come to you behind walls draw closer to find each other and to feel that is the purpose of life and we broke down each one of those things as it relates to our relationship with christ in the wilderness um and like what the purpose of olivia trip was and those that was the theme of our devotionals through um through that trip and that was really cool and really powerful um because that was something that like i just like really like that film i think there's so much to it um and there are sharks in it as well so relates to Sharknado. Um, very important. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd say The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, if y'all watched it, um, shoot me a text because I love that film and could talk about it for forever. Um, but then recently, actually on Sunday, two weeks ago, I don't know, um, I saw the film, the film of the Broadway musical Waitress um, that went came to theaters like briefly two weekends ago. I'm a, I'm a musical theater kid. Sorry, not sorry. Um, and I've actually had the soundtrack basically on repeat, like as I've been driving everywhere, because um, it has really hit home for me in a lot of different ways. Hmm. And the story of Waitress um, is about a woman who finds out that she's pregnant from her husband, but she has a really abusive relationship with her husband. Um, and it's a story of her and two other women that work with her as, as waitresses at a diner. Um, and like kind of their navigating um, love and like relationship. And um, one of the songs that has just been playing on repeat in my mind is called When He Sees Me. And it's this woman who um, has is like in her, I don't know, like she's like 35 or something. I don't remember, and she's like never dated or like been on a date or like anything like that. And um, she's starting this dating profile. And she has this whole song about all the what ifs about dating. And it's basically mm. a like she's very afraid of being known um and i just think that all those questions are very deeply relatable to me for so many reasons um but one of those things that just like comes to mind um is then throughout the, throughout the film in the music um there's this theme of like come out of hiding and like being okay with being known um and it brought me back to and actually i listened and prayed through um stephanie gretzinger's um album the undoing and she has a song that's said like it, that also has come out of hiding and it's about you don't need to be afraid of intimacy with the lord um and that has been really powerful for me to process in the last two weeks or so um so yeah th those are two two films that come to mind for one that i could talk about for ages about theology and one that i haven't actually it's been percolating and this is the moment when i'm talking about it right now <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. That's so cool. Um, yeah. And like, as you're processing stories, you can talk about it with God and kind of process, oh, this is resonating with me. Why is that? And it can help you do some self-exploration as well. Um, a little bit just hits me, hits me right in my heart. I've got the music on my mind all the time. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. I should, I got to listen to some of that. Um, yeah, the two that stood out to me, 
So a lot of you know my favorite movie of all time is Toy Story 3, which is a Pixar movie. But I know in a close second is Parasite, the Korean thriller, uh, which is very different than Toy Story 3. But uh, people tease me about it. They're like, well, how is that any how is that similar to uh, Toy Story 3? And I say, oh, it has a good script and they both have airtight scripts. So that's where I see similarities. But anyway, Parasite, I don't want to spoil too much about it, but uh, there's a theologian named Miroslav Volf who wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, which explores how we other different people from different um, ethnic groups or different classes or uh, yeah, there's that kind of a theological and spiritual exploration of why we exclude others and how that is detrimental Mm -hmm. to human flourishing. And in the movie Parasite, there is kind of class conflict and class division, but a lot of the conflict takes place amongst uh the poor showing disdain and uh, contempt for other poor people rather than seeing them as people that they are brothers and sisters with and seeing them as people they are in solidarity with. And so anyway, watching that film with the theology of Wolf in mind and how uh, Jesus speaks into our societal conflicts helped me both appreciate the movie more and appreciate the theology of the book exclusion and embrace more. So anyway, that's one that immediately jumped to mind. Um, and another one is the Ryan Reynolds comedy free guy. No Have you seen free guy. I hated that movie. <laughs> I like to hate that. Movie. That's funny. So <laughs> it's about oh. a video game character. Listen, Alecta, just listen. <laughs> It is about a video game character who was designed for a video game where there was peaceful interactions and like it was for growth. And and she's she's going to be like, uh, I see exactly where you're going. Yeah. So basically, instead of that, he's put into this violent his code is put into this violent video game where there's destruction and everyone's just out for themselves and he is oppressed and mistreated. And it's about a lot of the film is about how do we recognize the good code that is within us. And um, there's these reflections of the good world he was designed for that are still in this video game, even though it's violent. And so anyway, I think it has a, a lot of parallels with the Christian story of of the fall and how sin has corrupted the world. And yet there are still reflections of the good and beautiful world that God designed for us to live in. And, but at the end of the movie, it still presents freedom as being able to do whatever you want. So this is a movie where I see parallels with the gospel, but then at the end of the film, it presents the good life as instead of just the, one class of people being able to do whatever they want. Now, everyone in this society can do whatever they want, as if that would bring human flourishing, um, which obviously it's like, yes, mo- like access to opportunity for all different groups of people is important. 
But freedom that Jesus offers us in Galatians, Paul says, it's actually not freedom to do whatever we want. It's freedom to humbly serve one another in love. So anyway, that's a movie that I think is great to have theological discussions with, especially if you want to introduce middle schoolers and high schoolers to this type of watching a movie and then talking about Jesus in light of it. Uh, I think it's a great, I've done it with high schoolers uh, at the youth group at my church and their mind was blown, but it also helped me to have a conversation about how our society's vision of freedom is actually incomplete and how Jesus's vision of freedom is beautiful but it also it's freedom to live a certain way, not just freedom from all these constraints. It's it we're actually free to Christ in a sense. But anyway, uh, yeah. So I think Parasite and Free Guy are two that come to mind. And and relating how we talk about films and going a little bit back to art and theology. I don't know, Porter, if I've talked with you or talked on the podcast about uh, the reject, receive, redeem paradigm. Okay, so this is something that in um, my freshman year of college, actually, um, one of my professors, I was in a a cultural studies class, and one of my professors brought up this idea of a paradigm that has just really shaped, I think, how I've engaged a lot um, with with the world. Um, And for those of you that are maybe thinking about, oh, well, how do I watch secular films and see see the Lord? Um, I think it's a really helpful paradigm. Um, There's reject and acknowledge what is not true. receive what is good or beautiful or like true about that and then there's this idea of redeem um and like what what about this story what about this narrative what about um this in our culture is something that um is is maybe warped a little bit maybe is something that um expresses a longing for something that is true um but isn't quite there um how do we take that how do we redeem it or how do we say this isn't this is neutral. This isn't inherently bad. We don't need to reject it. This isn't inherently good. We don't need, we shouldn't automatically receive it, but we need to filter this through a process of saying, what can we redeem about this? And what can we, um, what can we see about this that can be fruitful? Um, and I think about that a lot um, in a lot of different ways, but I was thinking about that when you're talking about free guy, because uh, there's a lot that I want to reject about that movie, but I guess I will receive and redeem some of the things that you see. And I think for Free Guy, I see a lot of it as redeem, which is cool. I like that paradigm. And I do think a lot of Christian film criticism is focused on what do you need to reject? And a lot of it is for parents and like what's appropriate for your kids. But I just long for the day when like the most read Christian film criticism would be more focusing on the receive and redeem. Like obviously reject is important as well, but um. I think sometimes we miss really thoughtful films because we rejected it because it had too many bad words or or has a dark premise. And we let that we see the dark premise as keep as, oh, it can't have anything to say to a Christian when it's actually no, like the world is dark and there are hard things. And so this could actually be a an opportunity to explore truth. So anyway, that's great paradigm. I'll give credit to that thought or that paradigm to Dr. Bill Barker, who's now the president of Southern Wesleyan University. There you go. Bill Barker. Good job. Mm-hmm. All right. Now transitioning to Pixar questions. Are there any themes that you would like to see Pixar explore that they haven't yet explored in any of their feature films? 
I can start on that one if you want. This one is also from Nate Ryan, who was on the Good Dinosaur episode. Love you, Nate. Okay, so Pixar actually has a new TV show coming out. It was supposed to come out in 2023. Now they've delayed it to 2024. But it's about a middle school softball team. I forget what it's called. I need to look it up. But I'm excited that Pixar is going to do a sports themed um, because they haven't had a film that's focused mostly on sports unless you count the Cars franchise. But I'm not a NASCAR fan. So softball is more up my alley. So, yeah, I'm excited about that. And then maybe it's just because it's that time of the year. But I I did think to myself, I wonder if Pixar could make a good Christmas movie and what would that be like? But it's hard to say what themes I would want because I want the themes to be born from the director's experience. And so there's the best Pixar movies are from these like ingenious uh, directors and they're how they're expressing their experience in film. And so it's hard to say specific themes, but sports, I'm excited for that. And then Christmas maybe, but Electa kind of shook her head at that. What you don't you wouldn't be for a Christmas movie? I chafe against the idea of a of our Pixar Christmas film. Mostly just because I think animated Christmas films that have come out recently just like don't, you know, like they're I I learned a vocabulary word recently, they're kitschy. You know, they're they you know, they just don't have much substance and they're just trying to, you know, like I I feel like also, they're just reusing ideas over and over again. And um, I think we're in an era of film that's just so focused on sequels. <laughs> yeah. um, and one of the things that Pixar brings to the table most times, exception being maybe Cars and potentially Toy Story 5, <laughs> is, Toy Story 4 also maybe, is uh, Fresh Ideas, right? Um, is, is stories that hadn't been told yet. And I just think that, like, Christmas, Christmas films, like, let's leave that to Hallmark. <laughs> you know, there's a whole thread of people on Reddit who ex- show how the Cars, Cars 1, is a Hallmark movie. Because it's like the big hot shot from a city comes through a small town and falls in love with. Yeah, so. So maybe they've already done their Hallmark Christmas movie and it was Cars 1. I told Porter before we started recording, we're just going to be talking about cars the whole time. It's going to be a second cars episode. Oh, yeah. But what about you? Any themes that you want them to explore? So that's really interesting because I think that media that touches me the most or that um, stands out to me the most has themes of redemption. Um, I think another um, movie musical, sorry, The Greatest Showman <laughs> is another one of my favorites, just, just because of those ideas of, and there's like a lot of eschatological hope, I think, that's explored in The Greatest Showman. Um, but I think that like when I think about my favorite Pixar film, so Monsters, Inc. is definitely the top of my list. And I think that um, how the the energy company at Monsters, Inc. is, is transformed from um, feeding off of fear and utilizing that for energy to like laughter and joy and like that narrative arc of like redeeming that quality um, is just it, like so powerful to me. Um, and stands a lot, stands out a lot for me when I think about living my life and um, how I, you know, living a life of fear, living a life of joy. Um, and I think that um, when I think about films that I love Pixar to make, I just, that that theme of redemption itself really just touches my heart. 
Um, I think that Pixar can officially move away from any romance movies. I think that Elemental was enough at the end. <laughs> I yeah. think that Elemental's, um, I was, we were on the episode talking about that with uh, Michael and Anna Summer. And I think that the immigrant story is very good and very powerful. And um, I think that the romance bit of it is just, is weaker. It's a weaker plot. Um, and, and, but I also think that I'm excited to continue to see themes um, that are generated by and, and stories that are told by um, like like elementals told by immigrants, told by people that haven't had their voice heard um, in the space of, of animation or a film ever if, you know, like, and I think that that will bring in a lot of things that I, as a human being who, like a lot of the narratives and films that I've watched and stories that I've read all growing up have all been kind of made for me. Like I'm the majority, I'm a white person. And so I'm excited to see um, films that are coming about from um, from stories and from people and from cultures that I haven't experienced. Um, and I think that Pixar has started to do that. And I'm really like Coco and um, Elemental and um, what's that other one that we both don't like very much, but that we receive. <laughs> Turn in red. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that um, th- those films are really valuable um, to our story as it, um, as a culture, like in the United States, because we have so many other cultures that haven't been, their stories haven't been told in our media. Yeah. Um, so I'm to see that for sure. Yeah, me too. And I think it's interesting, the recent Pixar movies, there was, a, there was a phase where the theme of death was actually one of the main things they were exploring when they had Coco, uh, Onward, Soul, all of these films wrestling with death. And now with Turning Red and now Inside Out 2 coming out, it seems like puberty is the new thing they're exploring. So Inside Out 2 seems to be another puberty movie, just like Turning Red was. And so it'll be interesting to see how they explore it in a different way. And like you said, I had some issues with Turning Red. We haven't got to that yet. But I'm also concerned for Inside Out 2, but for different reasons. Just It just seems like a cash grab to me. Um, but yeah, we'll see how, how do they explore puberty for Riley? And I just, I I looked up the show, it's called win or lose the softball show. So that makes me think it's going to be about exploring competition and like complexities of competition, which I'm a very competitive person. So I welcome a movie that might nuance, uh, winning a little bit, because I'm assuming they're not going to just say win at all costs. I mean, if they do good for them, but. I'm assuming they're going to be more nuanced. I'm going to welcome that idea more than you are. So, Oh, you you know what? And I'm going to humbly receive that and not be competitive about it. Okay. Congratulations. Speaking of who's the greatest of all time, Electa, we have a question that's all about competition. Who is the greatest racer of all time? Is it? strip the king weathers or is it lightning mcqueen and this question came from two people it came from michael vetter and sam devore both wanted to know who's the greatest of all time okay i have to say that my answer to this question may not be like i don't think it's a good answer because i've never seen cars three so my apologies um because like cars two doesn't focus on the king at all and I've I've heard through the podcast that Cars Three kind of goes back goes back to him a little bit, um, but I'm gonna go old school. 
Strip Weathers. Wow, there you go. She laid it down with Strip Weathers. I'm going to say, so the stats, here's why there's a debate like that. They both won seven Piston Cups in their career. Okay? So you'd think, oh, it's a pretty tight race. But the King's career was almost like 25 years long, whereas Lightning only raced for, I believe it was like 13 years. So it was almost half the length. And if you think about it, Lightning would have won eight Piston Cups, but he pushed Strip the King Weathers across the finish line. Strip couldn't even finish his final race if it wasn't for Lightning, which in my mind means Lightning McQueen is the greatest of all time. And it, it reminds me. Well, yeah, go ahead. I was conflating Strip Weathers with Doc Hudson. Oh, no. Strip Weathers is the blue car yeah, no, that gets I, pushed I, across storyline of doc was behind the blue car for me and now i'm realizing that that is that's not true i'm sorry all pixar fans <laughs> wait <laughs> so does this change your answer yeah can i say doc hudson is my answer <laughs> okay okay so doc hudson is your answer are you counting his coaching career as a part of that <laughs> so here's the thing here's the thing we need to do some definitional work on what we mean by the word greatest because that I is think true. That Doc Hudson is great in that he imbues virtue <laughs> into mm-hmm. Lightning McQueen. He's the reason why Lightning is not an eight-time winner and why Strip Weathers is Strip Weathers is a seven-time winner. So um, I think that Doc, Doc Hudson is the source of the greatness for those two cars and thus is the greatest. You know. He only won three Piston Cups, Electa. <laughs> so you're... Why the definitional work? Is, is it about how much you win? Or so do you think the greatest football coach of all time is Tony Dungy because of the way he instilled character into players, even though Bill Belichick has won six Super Bowls? I don't know. I, I can't speak to the world of football whatsoever, but I'll say yes to that question because it, <laughs> it affirms my point. Okay. So, yes, if you define greatest in terms of greatness as a human or as a car, Doc Hudson is high high up there for sure. But we're defining it in terms of the sport as a racer. You didn't say that. I said, who's the greatest racer of all time? (laughs) Who's the greatest, Strip Weathers or uh, Lightning McQueen? I, let's... If you're listening to this, I encourage you to hit that button, rewind like seven times, and you tell me if I said racer or not. I think I did. <laughs> Either way, Doc Hudson is great. He is possibly the greatest coach or the greatest, uh, what's it called, crew chief of all time. But Lightning McQueen is my vote for greatest racer of all time. Okay. We'll let that be all right, next question. Oh, this one I have. This is a deep one. This is a good one. Sent in by Ty Mashansky. The character Bing Bong is a fading imaginary friend. So this is an inside out, the imaginary friend Bing Bong. What does the film suggest about the role of imagination and its connection to evolving spirituality and personal beliefs. 
That is such a good question, Ty. And I think that there's so much to say about the role of imagination um, as it plays into our spirituality. But I think the, the word that intrigues me the most about your question is evolving because of Bing Bong's disappearance. And I don't know, Porter, if you have anything to say about that, because I have a lot to say about imagination and prophetic imagination as it relates to our faith um, and how important that is. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there are components of Bing Bong as, you know, a character that gets dumped in the in the memory dump. I don't know what, what else it's called, what, what they use in the film. Um, but like as a character who's who is 86, um, what does that mean for um, our spirituality and like to grow as a human being? That's really interesting because I, I as a person think that like we are built upon every experience that we have, like we are we are contiguous with every experience that we've had and we are built on what we remember. So I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Well, when I hear, um, that he's a fading imaginary friend, it makes me think about people who maybe see, uh, religion as something that has been helpful to them as a story, but something that they maybe don't see as carrying, truth that is still relevant to them um is maybe what i hear in the question um so and i do think there are people who when they think of um the god that uh they believed in as a child that god could have easily been infiltrated by all sorts of harmful ideas of of who god is and so in a sense, uh, there are definitely ways in which as we grow older, we need to um, allow some things that we believe about religion or spirituality to fade or to we actually have to actively deconstruct them if they've created harmful. Um, yeah, if, if they've been harmful to us, I, I do worry, though, that in my generation, in our generation, Electa, um, people sometimes throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and where I would say that I see a difference between my friendship with Jesus Christ and Bing Bong is that Jesus one historically, like Jesus has not faded away into the ash heap of history in terms of there are people, desperate people around the world who find deep healing and peace and true restoration of their of their being in Jesus Christ. And so there are some religious figures that have faded into history. Um, and Jesus hasn't now, of course that doesn't, that's not a clear apologetic that his message is true. Um, it's, it shows that his message is powerful. Um, but I, I would say for myself, um, Bing Bong represents a, a, he was a gift to Riley at that stage of her life, but in a sense, she doesn't really need Bing Bong anymore. Um, and so when he sacrifices himself uh, and fades away, it's really sad and heartbreaking, but you kind of understand, oh, she needed Bing Bong when she was a three-year-old, but she doesn't need him anymore. And I would just say, I 
need Jesus. I just feel that need every day. Um, and so I, I think obviously there are other um, things that from my childhood that maybe I believed about God, God being, I saw him as impatient. I saw him as tapping his toes. Like when is Porter finally going to get it? When is he going to get his act together and be a good person? And now I, that vision of God, that impatient and frustrated God has faded. I don't, I mean, there are obviously times where I still wrestle with that vision of God, but I know that it's not true. And now I, I would say I do see God as joyful and compassionate and willing to embrace me when I fail and when I sin rather than just impatient or aggressive with my with my failure. So I don't know if that's a complete answer to the question. And it sounds like what you're going to say about imagination is pretty different from the path I just took. But that's that's what I thought when I heard the question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's super interesting because that is not what I thought when I was thinking about this question and about the role of Bing Bong um, in the sense of I, I don't think it ever even came to mind that Bing Bong was similar to like the idea of God um, in the sense of like like fading or the idea of deconstruction. Um, I think that um, deconstructing components of our faith is a very it's a healthy part of growth um when you know what you're constructing towards right like what are you what are you taking apart so you can put things back together right and i think that that end question not isn't necessarily asked very often um but i when i think about bing bong the scene that comes to mind is is that scene where he's sacrificing himself um but to help joy and sadness um in their journey um towards like riley like coming back in that place and um to me, in my mind, like Bing Bong represents um, like childhood and like what it means to be a child um, and what it means to accept things in good faith um, and to to be like small and innocent. And um, I think of, you know, Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. And I think of uh, being called a child of God, um, you know, like how powerful it is that as a, as adults of faith, we are our children. Uh, like that's that's really cool and really powerful and and what it means to be a child um, is something I've been reflecting on um, in and out in the past couple months Um, but when I think about bing bong I think about what what bing bong serviced to Riley in that idea of childhood and I think about my faith um, when I was a child and what was good and like what was serviced by it versus, you know, like the, like the impatience and I thought God was this, I thought God was this that I need to get rid of. Um, what is it that I saw about God as a child that I don't see as an adult that is mm. fading? Um, and, and what is it that if I go back and connect with that memory um, can offer service to and help propel my joy and help propel my sadness and help propel my understanding of myself? Um, by going back and looking at that uh, that memory or that imagination. And what does it mean as an adult to employ imagination and to not let that fade um, and to allow imagination to be an important part of my relationship with God, right? Uh, because as Christians, um, like our hope um, is is based in imagination, right? Not that it is made up, not that it is not true, um, but we hope for what we cannot see. What does that mean? we are imagining, right? Um, and we're, we are dreaming for um, this thing. And so um, I think about employing that gift of, of 
the imaginary um, and imagining and creating, going back to what we were saying about like creating way earlier um, in the show. Like um, I, when I think about Bing Bong, that's what I think of um, is that yes, he was fading, um, but maybe that's something that as, as an adult now, I wish that I had, I was more in touch with Bing Bong or, you know, I wish that I was more in touch with that imagination. And my, the pastor at my church actually did a whole series pre what child is this um, advent um shout out pastor robert if anyone all want to listen to him it's colorado community church in aurora colorado uh, <laughs> um on prophetic imagination actually and he challenged our congregation to memorize isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25 um which is the is a prophecy imagining what it will be like when christ comes um and and allowing that imagination to change what we do in our day-to-day life right um, and to change mm-hmm. how we interact the world and to change how we interact with our own joy and with our own sadness um, by imbuing that hope. So that's something that came to mind when I read that question, thinking about just the theology of bing bong, um, where Porter, I think your point very much still stands about like deconstruction and saying, saying, uh, letting go of that, which is not true of that we had concepts about, about God and letting God be bigger than like who we are (laughs) Um, and and knowing God as he knows himself, not knowing God as as we know him to be. And at the same time, I think it's powerful to think of like, wow, well, um, this this imaginary character in Riley's mind did not have no purpose, right? Like had a purpose in which he was three and had a purpose. Well, right. Uh, And joy and sadness touching base with Bing Bong and him being such a big part of their journey back to headquarters is something that stands out to me um, when I think about growing and evolving in my faith is is touching back to that childhood um, and mm. allowing you um, to propel me as well. Yeah, it's almost like there are things from our past that God has al- graciously allowed to fade into the memory dump, but then there are things from the past that are like dim that God wants to be brought out of that memory dump and, and restored into a part of how we pursue him. So that's a good reminder that there's a lot from childhood Porter that was, is good as well <laughs> and, and worth remembering sure. and childhood Electa, obviously. I, my goal, my goal in life is to redeem the phrase um, being laughed at um, because why well, I spend time with my cousin's kids all the time and I laugh at them all the time, all the time, because I'm delighting in them. You know, it's not a LOL. I'm laughing at you. I'm making fun of you. Um, but it's, I'm delighting in you. And everyone's like, well, you're laughing at me. No, I'm laughing with you. No, actually I'm laughing at you. (laughs) I think that that's something that's so important to delight in what it is to be a child, right? Like kids say the funniest things. My favorite thing to do on the internet is to look at um, funniest parenting tweets of the week and just read what kids are saying. It's the darndest stuff, you guys. <laughs> and it kills me. Um, and so that's that's just what I think of when I think about Bing Bong. I think about that spirit of, of childhood yeah. and imagination that contributes to what it means to be an adult. Did you have imaginary friends as a kid? I was so lame. I didn't even play with my toys. I read books. I read books and I wrote stories. I wrote a lot of poems. But I Hey, that's rec- not lame. That's not lame. I will recite a poem that I found that I wrote when, when I was in kindergarten, if you want to hear. I think particularly. Sure. Okay. And I drew, I have, uh, I'll send you a picture, Porter. I drew um, this in action, like above the poem. The poem goes, you burp, I burp, we burp, we love burping. <laughs> 
Let's go. I love it. Uh. There you go. Uh. That's prophetic. <laughs> prophetic imagination. Hey, well, one of our coming up questions is about the incarnation. And Jesus also burped. Spoiler alert. Who's so, that? Who's that? So look at that. On that note, uh, <laughs> I have a question from someone who clearly doesn't like the character Bing Bong. This is from Sam Solberg. <laughs> he asks, which imaginary friend from Inside Out is most analogous to the Antichrist? <laughs> so, <laughs> Wait, you didn't tell me about this question. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're not going to answer that. I'm just exposing Sam Solberg for the Bing Bong hater that he is for no reason. Sam has called Bing Bong the worst villain in Pixar history. He's not even a villain. He helps Riley. But anyway, he calls him a snake in the grass. And I'm here to to expose that to the world and say, no, Bing Bong is not like the Antichrist. He's more like Christ himself sacrificing his life for Riley. But oh, Bing Bong, we love Bing Bong. Haters going to hate. OK, next question. Also about Inside Out. Also from Ty. He asks, Inside Out emphasizes the importance of embracing and understanding sadness. From a spiritual perspective, how might one interpret the role of uncomfortable or challenging emotions in fostering spiritual growth and compassion? Such a good question. And honestly, I think it's a question that our, the church is not asking enough. Um very much so, especially when it relates to sadness. Um, I'm a person who I I feel very well acquainted with grief as a human being. And I think that navigating and learning about grief in my faith sphere has been pretty hard. Um, and there's been a lot that I've had to to choose to learn to figure out how to how to move forward um, in grieving moments in my life. I actually have one of my best friends um, at my job, uh, one of our first conversations, she asked me, what, what's your favorite holiday? And I told her that my favorite holiday is Lent. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I love that there is a holiday season that's dedicated to sadness. <laughs> and it, honestly, it's the time in the year that I feel closest to the Lord just consistently over the last several years. Um, wow. Um, because um, to acknowledge that Christ was a man of sorrows and to acknowledge that as human beings, we are bad at grief. And as Americans, we are bad at grief. And as, uh, as Christians, we're bad at grief. And like having those identities compound um, for me uh, has been really powerful um, for me to acknowledge and then work through and, and, and to learn different cultures and the way that they um, access and talk about grief. I took a modern Jewish culture class um, and learned about how um, in Judaism, um, how grieving is is done. And that was really powerful because there's so much more ritual and right to it um, in a very holy and sacred way, I think. Um, and thinking about how I needed to navigate my own grief, um, how I wanted to discuss it. It's just, yeah. And that has contributed a lot to my growth because I, um, as Job did, um, I sat in the dung, sat in the ashes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and have spent that time there. And I think about Jeremiah writing Lamentations um, and and just so many different psalms of grief and loss. 
um, and how so many of them are, um, you know, like if, if God is in a house, they're banging on the door and it's just ricocheting the sound and it's just empty and, and they're still there and they're still, they're still at the doorstep no matter what. And I think that that is how I feel often in my faith. Currently, mm. I think in the season where I feel like Jacob wrestling the angel of God and it's, there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of desperation and there's a lot of holiness um, because I will not let go until you bless me, even when you wrench my hip out of its socket. Mm. Uh, and I think that like acknowledging that pain and still holding on to God contributes to more knowledge of what Christ went through on the cross than we allow ourselves to experience in our daily lives. Thank you for saying that, Alexa. Uh, that's true it's beautiful and it's more powerful than anything i was going to say so i almost don't want to say anything um but there's the scene in the movie where riley her emotions cannot access the control panel and and i think it's fear who says guys riley can't feel anything Mm. and her sadness she's not allowed to feel sadness in that period because her parents were like, Oh, you're our happy girl. And like, thanks so much for being our happy girl. Like during this stressful move. And so she's put this pressure, like I need to be happy for my parents. So she's repressing the sadness and burying it so deep. I mean, obviously in the film, sadness is actually gone, but what the the movie is getting at is that if we don't allow ourselves to feel the full range of human emotion, we actually might get to a place of not feeling and as Christians, I think sometimes we think that's a good thing because if we're sad or angry, we're like, that's not good. And so, and I want to be pleasing to God. And so I'm going to stuff that. Whereas what God actually wants is for you to bring it to him and to weep in his arms, to to yell at him if you're mad at him. I mean, that is like you were saying there's so much scripture where we see emotionally honest prayers and yet we're really bad at it and i'm bad at it and yeah we think oh i need to shove this down but then we get to the point where we're not feeling anything and that is a not a good place to be as we see for riley it's a depressing place for her to be and what is the thing that and allows her to connect with her emotions it's in the movie it's oh sadness gets to come and sadness can break through um this kind of numbness that she's feeling but then it's also hugging her parents and being able to finally be emotionally honest with them and say i miss minnesota this is sad and and then they say oh we do too and yeah as christians like you were saying lent that's a time for us to say, Lord, we are sad. We are grieving. And then for other people in the church to say, me too. And how can we embrace each other and embrace Jesus in the midst of this pain that is very real? And it's not going to become any less real if we try to ignore it. So. And I think that the a really important word in Ty's question is the word compassion. Because when when we think about compassion, that's literally... The definition of that is with suffering, like being in suffering with somebody. And you see sadness express compassion um, when they're getting lost and joy is just frustrated and wanting to move on. And sadness is like, no, we need to fill this, fill this out for a bit. 
and then we're ready to move um, and how powerful that is in the film and then how that relates to how Riley's parents respond to her. And, and sadness does foster compassion in us because we're able to acknowledge that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. And when we say that to each other, um, then we can hope for what should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's a great way that the film look, that's film doing theology right there. That's Pixar showing us a truth about compassion that Christians need to know. And if when we think about Jesus's compassion, clearly it was linked to human sadness. Um, so here's the Lord of heaven and earth weeping over his friend who has died, weeping over the city of Jerusalem and its rejection of him. Jesus was well in tune with his sadness. And if we're followers of him, that's a part of following him, too, is being able to feel sad and acknowledge it. All right. Well, that uh, leads well into one of our final questions here. Which Pixar moment best explains the incarnation? Explain, not explores, explains. Sam DeVore sent it in with the word explains. Okay, okay. Best explains. But I am totally okay if you want to more explore the incarnation because I don't think Pixar is giving us propositional truth about the Son of God uh, becoming human flesh. So, yeah, explores, explains, or depicts um, Mm -hmm. any of those verbs. Mm. I'm excited about this one, but. First, you should go first. Okay. So. We haven't talked about this one on the podcast yet, but the movie Soul is about, on the one hand, it is about a person who has never had a human flesh yet, like a a real person, the soul named 22, who is convinced that being a human is going to be horrible. And so she doesn't want, so she's a pre-incarnate soul uh, that has not had flesh. And so obviously in this surface level sense, okay, experiencing flesh for the first time. Now I'm not putting aside the metaphysics of soul, what we think about this pre-incarnate souls, not saying that's how Jesus experienced his incarnation. But what the movie is exploring really is, is human life good? Like is for 22, at least not Joe is wrestling with questions about vocation and calling. But 22 is like, is human life even good? And Mm -hmm. there's this scene towards the end of the movie where Joe, he takes out this bagel and lollipop from his pocket and a leaf, a helicopter leaf. And he just throws them on the side table like, ah, these are just the random things from my day. But then he starts playing the piano and starts to see, oh, wait a second, these things are a beautiful part of the human experience. And he, it shows a montage where it shows him at the beach, putting his feet in the water and him learning to play piano from his dad and him laughing as he bikes through the sun as a kid and getting to hear his students play music. There's this montage of all these moments of human life. And then it zooms out and it shows the city of New York. And then it zooms out and shows the planet earth. And then it shows the entire Milky way galaxy. And there's this beautiful music playing and it's showing that human life is beautiful. Human life is good. And there's something cosmic to 
humanity. Anyway, Jesus comes into a world where human flourishing has been corrupted. And we were, there's this question of, is human life even good? Like, why are we here? What's the point? Like, it's just a lot of suffering, a lot of cruelty, a lot of decay, and a lot of sin. And in the incarnation, Jesus reminds us who humanity is and that humanity was created good. And Jesus is an affirmation. And the fact that he, that God himself could even become incarnate in a human body is demonstration of the value of the human body and the value of the human person. And so Jesus enters the world as a specific human, a Jewish man. So in the first century who, so in a, an oppressed people group in a time of like, not in this big historical moment, he's kind of in the back. He's from the backwoods, Galilee, right? A very specific human person who then is re reminding and sealing the dignity of humanity. Um, and so obviously the incarnation is about more than that. It's not just a humanistic experience. I mean, this is God's rescue plan, how he sought to save and redeem humanity. But I do think a soul is an incomplete picture of the beauty of human life and the value of having an enfleshed experience. And um, yeah, I think there's probably moments in Jesus's life where he encountered beauty the way that Joe does, but in a deeper sense, he reminds us and is the ultimate affirmation that uh, humanity has worth and the God of the universe saw fit to redeem his people. So anyway, soul. That was a very good answer. Very good answer. I think I'm struggling because there are so many Pixar films. (laughs) I'm struggling to figure out which one really best describes And the incarnation specifically is an interesting choice for me because um, it's not, you know, it doesn't best describe Calvary, right? Or best describe, you know, like these moments of of Christ um, and of Christ's life and um, Christ's resurrection and all these things, right? It's, to me, the incarnation is, I mean, we're in the Christmas season as we're recording this. So, like, I think of Christ as as a baby, right? But then also think about, like, Christ being human. And I think that you gave a really good answer. I'm going to give a silly answer, can I? Okay, go for it. My silly answer is I think of Boo in the Monsters, Inc. when she's in the toilet stall. <laughs> and she's singing her song. She's like, da-da-da-da long, la-la-la-la-la. And Sully's like, hello, are you done in there? <laughs> um, when I think about the incarnation, I think about Christ being human. Um, like we talked about, Christ Christ burped, right? Um yeah. And I think that it's really powerful to think about God um, being human and entering a world that is so, uh, like, so not on, you know, it's, he's not God, right? He's like entering into the human world and he has these human things like Jesus went to the bathroom, y'all. And I think when I think about that, I think about Boo being this child in the Monsters, Inc. world. (laughs) It's like, she's not of that world, right? Um, but she's experiencing these things like in, in, in monster life. And 
the thing about Boo is that she's bringing this joy because um, then the next scene she's like they're playing hide and go seek in the in the stalls and Sully's like play, and like has all of a sudden like his fear is gone yeah. um like his moments of anxiety and like we have to fix this you know like he is kind of coming into an understanding that ends up like I said earlier like gives the course of redemption of the film um about joy and laughter um so, so she is a little child who completely shifts a paradigm of fear into one of joy and peace so and that's, that's my, yeah. that's my um, example of of a moment that when incarnation i think is described in the art of pixar films i don't know if it's the best one but it's just the only one that was coming to mind when i was thinking about a child <laughs> um like just bringing bringing that to um yeah to humanity or in that case to monsters anity mon- the, the monstropolis I thought you might say when Mater says to Lightning, you're my best friend. So. <laughs> so. How does that <laughs> I mean, it speaks for itself. <laughs> Mater is clearly, I mean, talk about incarnational, right? Like Pixar character. It's because he, he is tow truck with, with us <laughs> he is he's a with type of friend he's gonna be with you in the cow tipping and in the that's the t- best racing. you will maybe yeah maybe i don't know if it's the best but well that is an example a singular example yeah all right so here's our last question i'd this person, this is from Nate Ryan as well. He asked, what Pixar characters correspond with the 12, each of the 12 disciples? Now, that is a lot of people. And I was saying with Electa, I don't know Bartholomew well enough to be able to assign. I like, I don't know if Bartholomew is more like a Mr. Potato Head or if he's a uh, like Mater. I don't know. So he's Guido. Yeah. All right, so locked in, Bartholomew is Guido. <laughs> okay, but so we got one down. Okay, maybe we could do all 12. But I picked, I actually narrowed it down, Alexa. So we're going to uh, go through some hits here. And I haven't prepared any answers for these. I don't know if you have. So I'm, this is going to be off the cuff. Wing it. Peter. Who is Peter? This is going to be hard. A character with a temper. Yeah. Peter had a temper, um, but also one who's maybe a little bit more loquacious. Because in Acts, he gives quite a few long speeches. Someone who will eat anything. I think I have one. Okay. But you said temper. There's a clear answer of temper. Well, anger, duh, but I don't think that that counts. But you don't think Peter would be anger? No. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, wait. Oh no! Now I'm embarrassed. Is Luca a Pixar film? It is. Okay, I'm thinking about something in in Luca. I don't know why. I have a different person on the list that I was going to bring up, Luca, but a different disciple. Okay, well then, but, let them, let's go. Let's go, Peter. What what are you, what's your thought? So for Peter, I'm thinking Barley from Onward. Oh, um, yes, very gregarious. Yeah, like kind of a go-getter, kind of sees the day, but 
um, maybe a little careless and uh, impatient with somebody who's more res- more like reserved. I don't know. See, I don't think that Barley's impatient though. You're right. He's not. He's not. He has a lot of grace and patience for his younger brother. It's more that Ian doesn't have patience and grace for him. Is that? Yeah. Okay, so kind of. I could some vibes, but not he's not a perfect fit. I don't know. But that's what I thought of Barley. Okay, that's fair. Do you I have somebody? The core, but I don't think that that's very real. I just think that the manticore has a sense of temper has a, has a temper. And um and then she gets like hyped to go on mission. She's like, I've forgotten who I was, and now I'm doing this. Yeah. And she has a sword. <laughs> and she there has you go. Oh, she has a sword. Yeah, yeah, that's good. She has the whole speech where she's like, oh, this is who I am and this is who we are. And she has a diner or the, the Manticore's Tavern. She's, Peter, yeah. famous for his diner. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean that Peter saw the, all the food be dropped before his Lord, I've never eaten anything unpure. And then. <laughs> oh, OK. Oh, there you go. There you go. OK, so it's this is a tough one, Nate. I don't know how accurate these are going to be. Let's go with. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Dory is the first one that comes to mind. Why? Um, not because Mary Magdalene had short-term memory loss, but <laughs> <laughs> um, who are we talking about again? Just kidding. Um, but because um, because Dory is so faithful and sees and attaches to Marlin as someone that has offered her life transformation and friendship. And I think that Mary Magdalene, as a disciple of the Lord, um, experienced healing from um, from the demons that she had and um, is is seen throughout the narrative of scripture to be there with Christ and like be a part of his ministry um, in and lots of like the, the male disciples, but then also the women. And I just think that like Dory is such a faithful follower um and she's she's not the main character but she's ready to do anything you know like she's ready to let go of everything she's ever known you know she's like hanging on the tongue of the whale and she's like bye you know all of those things i just think that dory is a really good um a really good character and also i think very um impactful when you think about like mary magdalene's journey and her relationship with christ um yeah that's really good this is tough. What do you think? Well, the first thing that when I think of Mary Magdalene, the first thing I'm thinking of is her encounter of the risen Lord mm. and and the resurrection. But I'm struggling to think of a Pixar character who has an experience like that. Oh. Maybe I'll say this. The first person to share the gospel, yeah. The people, um, the toys who got plucked, all of the toys collectively who got plucked from, they were holding hands and count, thinking they were about to burn in the furnace. And then the claw comes and rescues them. Um, just as someone who had a very visceral encounter of her rescue from her Lord who loved her. Also, when you were when you were pondering, I also thought Jesse, maybe as a toy who had experienced loss and oh. like and then all that but then is now like learning what it means to be loved and cared for and then then is being a testament to that to other toys throughout the throughout the franchise that's good and jesse is one of the toys that gets plucked from the dump so 
That's good. All right. How about Matthew? Etch a sketch. <laughs> clearly. Clearly. This is the one where I went Luca in my brain because oh. Matthew, as a tax collector, was seen sort of as a pariah. And then he's embraced by Jesus. And in this small Italian town, the sea monsters are seen as a pariah and they're seen as dangerous. And yeah, Luca himself is a sea monster who takes on human flesh, just like Matthew. No, I'm just kidding. Um, And uh, yeah, I just think Luca then deals with insecurities about that. Not a fisherman, but then he becomes friends with fishermen. Oh, there you go. So anyway, that's I thought of Luca because of that kind of um, the fact that he was an outcast, uh, but then is uh, ultimately embraced by a community that loves him and sees him as more than that thing that he was seen as an outcast for. I'm thumbs up to that. I think definitely Luca. 100%. I do have a thought. I don't know if these names are on our list, but I'm thinking about um, John and James, Sons of Thunder. I definitely think have to say that it has to be Mr. Incredible and um oh Frozone? Frozone, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. And they want action. They're like, put me in the game. Like Yeah. I could totally see them being like, put us on your right hand and your left. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Where is my super soup? <laughs> Um, Judas. Who is Judas Iscariot? <laughs> I know that Sam Solberg would immediately say Bing Bong. No. And I reject that. Who's someone that we trusted who let us down? I think, I think we have to go up. Yeah. Yeah. You're going with Charles Muntz. Charles Muntz. Explain. Um, well, Tarzmut is like this this person that um, like throughout the films we're like, oh, he's a good person, you know, like he, we're we're taught to trust him as a character, right? Um, and he's also very rich, handles a lot of handles a lot of dough, you know. Um, and then um, we see that he is so much more set on his own success um, than on even the mission that he's doing, you know, like even preserving the life of. Um, Kevin, the bird, um, and he's he's willing to kill for it and betray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say Ernesto de la Cruz from Coco. Mm-hmm. He is also a traitor who, had, when we first meet him, uh, we think he's a good guy, um, but he's ultimately... Guys, sorry if you haven't seen these films. Oh, yeah. Spoil- major spoilers. Um yeah, <laughs> I'll give an intro about that. Um, anyway, he alter and the other thing that I think of, like, he's in it for himself. He's just in it for the fame and glory, which Judas maybe was more in it for wanting there to be some sort of uh, a different type of Messiah than Jesus was. Um, but at the end, Ernesto de la Cruz is vilified and his name which was once honored is now used as kind of a scourge and and judas you know when we hear the name of judas it immediately 
people's minds jump to what he did and he certainly has the worst reputation of um, any of the disciples because of for good reason and it's always it's always funny in the go- or not funny but in the gospels when they introduce him they're like judas iscariot the one who betrayed jesus like whoa talk about a spoiler um they give it to you right up front but that's literally what he's known as from the get-go when we're introduced him Jesus still loved Judas and still invited him into the fold, even knowing what he was going to do. So, um, and he washed his feet the night of his betrayal. Do that. Knowing full well that Judas was going to betray him, he still washed Judas's feet. Charles Muntz is is Judas is Doug Jesus. <laughs> because Doug still serves Charles, is that? I don't know. I don't know. Open lick his feet. <laughs> Wait, Charles Muntz would lick Doug's feet? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, oh, geez. oh Doug. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> Charles Muntz's feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, what about Mary, the mother of Jesus? To close this out, what picks our character? character? Wow, I'm tired. Which character is Mary? Which character is Mary? Hmm. I don't want to dishonor Mary. Like this is I, <laughs> such a powerhouse of a biblical character. Um, Doug, so maybe Mary is Carl from Up. Has this kid come totally interrupt her life um, and her life plans? I guess Carl's a little bit more stubborn about it than Mary is. I don't think I could see him singing the Magnificat, but. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, but he is a willing participant in an an adventure that he did not see coming. Yeah, and he he journeys through it, um, and he and he learns through it, and he's there. And then in that whole film, he finds almost parenthood in a sense to, um, yeah, to Russell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm trying to think. I, I'm trying to think of a character who's just like. Holy. Who's a true either a truth teller or yeah, <laughs> a virgin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'll just start labeling the virgin. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. But not Mrs. Incredible. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> shoot. Um, well, I'm trying to think of a truth teller, like someone who, who uh, was a willing participant, who saw truth and obeyed truth. Um, this is making me realize I feel like Pixar needs some more iconic central women characters. Um, what? No. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she's Merida. Let's think. How let how could Merida fit into that paradigm? I don't know. She's a woman. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> She's a so, um, well, yeah, I don't know. Merida's What wife? about what what about yeah. the mom from Onward? I don't know. I just feel like she is a mom who has a 
has a special relationship with her sons believe i don't know <laughs> i can't see mary being really into a centaur that's my my problem with that. <laughs> wait joseph not barley and ian's ac- <laughs> actual father is joseph the centaur is that <laughs> All right, we're getting we're getting off the rails here. I think we just stick with Carl. I think Carl, you that was our best find probably. Um But yeah, it's it's a character it's a biblical character that is hard to find parallels with because she was the mother of the son of God. So Well, Alecta, this has been quite fun. Um do you have any parting words for our listeners? Keep listening. If you don't follow the podcast, follow the podcast. Um, I win at Joe. Um, I've now been on the podcast three times, so suck it. And uh, <laughs> wow, if you don't wow. want to. <laughs> um, and uh, keep reflecting. Keep thinking about how art that we engage with in our daily life um, interacts with theology, interacts with what we believe, and. Um, let's let's do some work on on the narratives that we receive and reject and redeem and what we tell ourselves and allow ourselves to be storied people and be a part of the story of of Christ. Amen to that. And thank you for the plug. Yes, if you don't uh, yet re- follow the podcast, please do. And you can leave a review and a rating. That's very helpful. I always remember I'm supposed to say that at the end of the episode, and I always forget. So thank you, Alexa. Merry Christmas, and thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.